The Canadian province of Ontario requests assistance from Canada's military to ease the pressure on the province's hospital network. Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi unveils ambitious plans to green Italy's economy. And the first findings from the 2020 census in the United States are published. We'll explore what they say. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 27th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And with us today are our regular Tuesday duo, Monocle's Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, and Monocle 24's Daniel Bache. Ed, Daniel, great to have you both with us on the programme today. We were chatting just before coming to air about the uh, the Oscars, the controversies I guess I could say around which still seem to be lingering and one of the main ones is around Anthony Hopkins Daniel one of my favorite actors so I was personally pretty thrilled that he he won best actor on Sunday but there's been a bit of a twist and turn in that that tale as well hasn't there yeah absolutely and uh, a great uh, son of Wales there uh Wonderful to see his acceptance speech, but of course, the bit of controversy is the fact that he wasn't actually in the room and the Academy had made the decision that they would do everything uh, from Union Station in Los Angeles. And uh, he didn't get a chance to to do that live into the show, even though we, we saw other elements of, of people speaking from uh, around the world. And uh, I think that's too bad, but uh, he did uh, give a nice tribute to, to Chadwick Boseman and, and, you know, in... Uh, a clip that was less than a minute in in what turned out to be his his thanks and acceptance speech the day later. Um, he twice mentioned the fact that he didn't think he would he would win at all. But uh, you know the the other thing is I I think as an eighty three year old and and with the year that we've we've just gone through, I don't. I, I don't fault him for not being in the room, Tomas, and I think that was a, a fine decision. Whatever his reasons were, uh, you know, being in the Welsh countryside is a, is a great excuse for anything, of course, as you know. Uh, but uh, I, I think some people were a little bit harsh on him, and I, I think he's, uh, as uh, even at the age he is, I thought I think he's done a nice job on social media in the past year on, on being uh, delightful and, and celebrating who he is. I just want to say one thing, actually. I want to say that uh, there's a certain studio manager called Louis Allen who cut off our, 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 our pre-air discussion about promising young women. We were going into great detail. Didn't want any preamble. Just wanted to get on with the show. Uh, so Louis Allen is the human version of the orchestra when someone speaks at the Oscars for too long when they've won. I think we can characterize him as that. I know. No, I think next time we do that, it's going to start fading <laughs> some music up to just sort of subtly prompt us into it. Exactly. But yeah, uh, great show. Seen a lot of the films. Exciting times. Yeah. Well, we begin here in Canada, where yesterday the province of Ontario, which is battling its highest number of coronavirus hospital admissions since the pandemic began, requested help from the Canadian military to help ease the strain on the region's hospitals, many of which are nearing capacity. Um, Daniel, yesterday's request felt like a, a pretty weighty one, but I suppose it speaks to how severe the situation has become here, hasn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Really underscores uh, a grave situation that we touched on a little bit last week when we talked about the fact that uh, military-style field hospitals were being set up in the parking lots of of some of uh, Toronto and the GTA's uh, biggest hospitals, including Sunnybrook, which is in midtown Toronto. Really just a a dire situation, if we use a film analogy, kind of a horror uh, film right now in uh, both how... Premier Doug Ford has, has handled this situation and his uh, his uh, apology uh, last week, which uh, didn't go down too well with a lot of people, but but really uh, a tricky situation. You know, I remember as a kid, Toronto being uh, the butt of the joke for, for people across the country when, when the city had to call in the military to clear snow uh, from the streets to Moss. And obviously, this is a very uh, different and dire uh, situation where there simply isn't any room in in, in the hospitals in, in in the biggest cities in the province. We talked about that military hospital being built at Sunnybrook. Well, they've certainly run out of rooms uh, in in the hospital, and now people are are in those uh, temporary uh, hospitals being cared for. And uh, the head of Ontario's uh, hospital network, the CEO, uh, calling it the gravest civil emergency in the province's history, which is quite something. There are uh, field hospitals being built or or already in place in, in big cities like Hamilton, uh, Ottawa, Barrie, uh, Mississauga as well, just outside of Toronto. And there is another sort of twist to this, and that's the fact that a lot of people uh, are now dying at home which is a, a really scary situation where there's not a lot of uh, place places in hospitals and people don't want to, uh, in a sense, be a burden or uh, put themselves at greater risk by going to a hospital. And there's the, the one terrible story uh, this week of a, of a 13-year-old girl uh, in Brampton dying in her sleep, which, which, was, which was awful as her, her mother was at the time in an ICU being treated, the mother, the son, and, and, and the daughter all uh, contracted COVID-19. So uh, just a, a real awful situation. And, uh, you know, some sort of uh, positive news is I'm seeing a lot more people getting vaccinated now. There was a lot of confusion about how to, to get a vaccine, if there were enough, and, and where that uh, where that would happen. Obviously, we talked a few weeks ago on the same program about uh, the fact that there were lots of appointments going unfilled and there was these uh, massive uh, um, uh, public venues that were, were just uh, empty, uh, you know, all set up with many chairs and, and many people to to uh, give out jabs, but uh, no one there to take those appointments. Uh, a lot more people getting them. And it seems uh, to us that they're, they're happening in uh, chemists, at, at, at the pharmacists, uh, where uh, you sort of, uh, you saw the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife get their jab uh, last week uh, at, at a Shoppers Drug Mart, I think, which is just a, a local chain. And so a lot of people are, go- are going there and uh, good to see a lot more people are, are getting those uh, as the, the strategy for rolling out the vaccines is starting to shift. And Ed, there's been a lot of debate here about whether it's the provincial government or the federal government that ultimately bears responsibility either for the vaccines or for the situation in in hospitals across the country. We've seen moves in in places like Germany, for example, that have set out to put control for managing the pandemic uh, in the hands of the government in Berlin rather than those of the the state. So centralising the response to to the pandemic. How centralised is, broadly speaking, 
power becoming, would you say? Or indeed, should it should it become uh, if a country is fame facing a moment of, of crisis on, on a large scale? You could argue it's quite hard in, in larger countries, perhaps like even like Canada or the US. But I think it's important to have some sort of centralised control, um, at the very least centralised leadership at some, uh, during something like a global pandemic, because you need your centralised government to be basically uh, pushing in the right direction advising at the very least states and regions so i think really uh, if nothing else uh, this pandemic has showed good leadership and bad leadership and we know certain leaders uh like uh jacinda ardern in in new zealand have, have really come out shining but uh i think really the pandemic is a test of leadership and it's important uh to have someone in central government who's able to lead and for others to be able to follow that. Well, next here on the late edition, Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi has unveiled an ambitious set of proposals to rebuild the country's economy in the years following the pandemic. And as Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica, told The Globalist here on Monocle 24 a little earlier today, the focus is on building an economy that's green. Among the programs, as you said, there are um, high-speed uh, trains uh, throughout the country, not only toward uh, between the, the biggest cities, uh, um, a lot of money for the green economy in a similar way to what uh, Joe Biden has promised uh, in America. A fastest justice system, which has been a big problem for Italy. Uh, a lawyer, an Italian lawyer, once told me, I'm not sure in my lifetime I will see the end of the old uh, legal proceedings I'm following uh, right now. In short, it is uh, a revolution uh, to be faster, to be greener. We have not seen something like that in Italy since after World War II when America launched the Marshall Program to help countries hit by the war and uh, in particularly in our country to support democracy after fascism and against the threat of communism. Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica there, speaking to us on The Globalist today. Ed, Enrico described the the plans here by the Prime Minister Mario Draghi as a revolution. How are they being uh, received in Italy itself? I mean, this has been uh, front and centre of news for a while, albeit there's been a lot of uh, uh, competing uh, information and things going on. And... Uh, when you talk about a sort of green revolution, yes, that's the case. Uh, the potential is is really big. Uh, but, you know, it needs to be noted, this has come from the European Union. The U- European Union has uh, handed out money uh, as part of this recovery fund uh, for European nations. And we know that Italy and Spain are the two largest recipients of that recovery fund money. Italy has over 200 billion euros at its disposal and the European Union has made it pretty clear where it wants that money to be spent. When I say that, I don't mean specifically, but it's made it very clear that it wants Italy to modernise in terms of uh, its green economy and also uh, uh, basically uh, modernising in our other areas, including digitalisation. And so uh, it's being extremely well received because there is a chance to 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 really change the country we know we know that the the economy has been sluggish and there are plenty of things in need uh, of modernization just to sort of touch on a few things there's talk of extending for example 
the high-speed network uh, further into the south of the country. Obviously, Italy, as you will know, is a place that has a big divergence between the, the much richer north and the south. So that's a, a very good move. Uh, I know from living here that uh, paper... It, it is well received in this country. They love a good paper trail. Uh, so many things need signing. There is paperwork everywhere. Part of this money will be spent on the digital on the digitalization of public administration, which can only be uh, a good thing. Uh, also, things like building efficiency. Again, from living here, I know having rented a place not so long ago, many buildings are very, very low on the efficiency code. Uh, there is no double glazing, uh, heating leaks out from the buildings, both public and private. And so, again, money will be earmarked to improving building efficiency. And also what that clip touched upon, the fact that um, Italy is is a place that's very lethargic in both its legal system. It can take very long for a court process uh, to, to, to be completed. It can take years for something to happen. Also, you know, uh, Italy is, is not always deemed as a very good place uh, to do business compared to some of its European counterparts, uh, including uh, the UK and Spain and even France. Uh, it can take very long to draw a contract tracks there's so much red tape so uh, a lot of this money will also be earmarked for sort of trying to strip down uh, some of that red tape it will be presented um, to Brussels between tomorrow and the day after uh, you know we saw uh, earlier today how it sailed through the Camera of Deputies uh, these uh, the, basically the, the the detail of how Italy in, intends to spend its money only 19 uh, voting against it with 51 abstentions 442 approved so widely I'd say amongst politicians although the far right Brothers of Italy party has been kicking up a fuss as it does about most things widely well received from politicians and also the general public who want to see much needed uh, modernization and hopefully and hopefully also much needed uh, stimulus to the economy. And Daniel, we're seeing many big economic plans being unveiled or proposed by many governments around the world. And, and lots of those plans are anchored in this idea of the green economy. How similar are those plans, would you say? Or are there any key differences that have caught your eye so far? Well, most of them are based on cutting emissions and, and those key emissions targets. You know, when we had the big meetings last week, Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government came out with a new pledge. But the reality under that is they have never hit an emissions target and they're, they are the worst offender, so to speak, in, in the G7 for, for for reaching those targets. So that's one thing. And I think, you know, there's... There's always talk of, of, of accountability and how you make things happen. I think a little bit uh, of incentive is, is needed in that sense. And, you know, the Liberal government in their last budget obviously had a lot to say about uh, similar things we're talking about with Italy here and, you know, a green recovery and building back better and, and how that needs to be on uh, on green initiatives. But, you know, I think... There needs to be incentive for other uh, for other people, and uh, a lot of that starts with with big business. You know, if we look in the states, you know, the, the largest asset manager in the world, BlackRock, they're forcing their 
clients and stakeholders into action. I always ask people, Tomas, on the entrepreneurs, you know, who are the drivers of change, whatever theme or topic we're talking about. And most people say it's it's everyone from from consumers to governments to businesses of all sizes. And, and so I think, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, an asset manager telling their clients they have to act in a certain way to, to cut their own emissions and, and lower their carbon footprint, that's one thing. Uh, but there also has to be a trickle down in, 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 in incentive. Ed uh, talked about building efficiency. Well, I'll, t- I'll use the example of, of solar energy, uh, Tomas. Where my parents live in southern Alberta, it's one of the sunniest places in Canada per, per days of sunshine per year, even though it can be bitterly cold in, in Alberta. And they costed out, well, you know, getting solar panels for their house. You know, we want to do our part. It would take 25 years, they found out, to, to make those pay for themselves and, and for savings to, to show up. They're in their mid-60s tomorrow, so you can do the math. There's not really any incentive there. But I think there's lots of learnings we can take from, from different places. And this is what's interesting. In going forward, if you look at China, they are the worst polluter, the worst emitter in the world, but they're also the best at producing technology to, to lower the impact of carbon emissions. If you look at India, they have incredible, um, incredible ability to, to roll out solar power, as, as I just talked about, and, and those lessons can be used for other developing and, and poor countries, I think. So a lot of this, I think, has to be in creating incentive for, for all, all levels from, from from individual homeowners to, to small companies and, and big governments and businesses to to shift and and do the right thing. And there's so many fascinating sectors out there. Uh, I think of the possibilities of, of hydrogen. I've talked about that uh, on the show before in Alberta as you know a nice transition out of out of out of the oil sands. So so these things need to be talked about. And I think that's uh, that is a theme that we we are seeing mostly. But uh, to answer your question, most of the the discussions is still on. Uh, reaching climate targets. I just don't know how, if everyone knows how they can play a part. Well, finally here on the late edition, findings from the US census, which was conducted last year, have begun to be published. And Ed, the the headlines from the findings we have so far um, are that the US population growth has slowed over the past decade, uh, but also that representation in the US House of Congress is looking set to change in some states particularly, doesn't it? Yeah, really interesting what you said, Tomas, the fact that uh, population growth in the US has indeed been the slowest uh, since records began back in 1790. And this census also uh, of note, because remember, Donald Trump tried to originally get a question about citizen citizenship included uh, in the census. It, of course, never made it in there. Um the census does help dictate the political landscape of the US because it, it dictates uh, how the House of Representatives is going to look. Now, the House of Representatives is, a, is of course, a lower chamber in US national politics. And the number of uh, seats that each state has in the House of Representatives is done based on uh, population. So just to give a very quick explainer, There are 435 seats in the House of Representatives and obviously the most popular states have the highest numbers. And if some states lose uh, population numbers or they're below the national growth rate, they're set to lose seats and and vice versa. So if 
uh, estate is growing very fast, it is likely uh, to uh, gain seats. And so we've seen this real shift away from the sort of traditional populated parts of the country. And this is this is nothing new. It's part of an ongoing trend. So basically, uh, the sort of industrial parts of the country and agricultural parts that used to be the real sort of centres are changing. So we're talking about the northeast and the Midwest. And, 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 and people are moving away from those places to sort of sunnier, more exciting places, the so-called sunbelt. So there have been mega uh, shifts. Uh, we're seeing really fast-growing states like Florida, and Arizona and uh, Northern Carolina and Texas. And so uh, it will be really interesting to see how that affects politics. You've already seen how it is a bit, how the fact uh, that Arizona went blue uh, in the 2020 presidential election. Interesting, California lost one seat in the House of Representatives. For the first time in its history, so did places like Ohio and uh, New York. And, and just to briefly finish, because it is complicated, what happens now? Well, there's also the sort of thorny issue of, of redistricting and uh, gerrymandering. And I think we could probably, Thomas, uh, as you know, dedicate an entire show to all these kind of complicated things. But basically, uh, congressional districts for these House of Representative seats uh, get drawn up. And there's all sorts of sort of uh, things that take place. Uh, for, con- uh, for 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 parties to sort of try and eke out an advantage by by drawing these lines in their favour, Republicans control many of these uh, redistributing committees, and so they they may try and uh, work out some of these things so that the the new seats uh, fall in their advantage. But it will definitely change uh, the makeup of uh, of U.S. politics. It, it will shift how things are going and and it will definitely uh, uh, potentially uh, change uh, how some of these uh, state uh, chambers are controlled in the future. And Daniel, just a final thought to you. The US census last year, as Ed alluded to there, was was politicised in a way that's pretty rare for, for the national count every 10 years. But the value of these national surveys, as we start to get some of the findings from the US survey from last year, is still absolutely crucial for, for lots of reasons, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Really for getting a, a picture of a country... Uh, or a city or a town and, and how it's changing. I think these these things are vital. Obviously, we had uh, a politicized debate about this exact thing in Canada in the past generation where the previous conservative government under Stephen Harper wanted to scrap the, the long form census and uh, the liberal government uh, worked very hard, obviously, to bring that back. Canada has a long, long history of, of these census of, of doing them every decade or so dating back to to the 1850s, I believe, before there was even a, a constitution to create a country um, years later. So I think that's really interesting. I was thrilled to fill out the census uh, this year here in the UK as, uh, as someone that's been here for, for a few years uh, as a foreigner to help, you know, build a p- picture of what the country is and, 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 and to really 
you know, show show what the uh, the differences are in in different parts of cities or towns. And I think, you know, you, you would hear many civil servants and, and leaders of cities and and countries of all levels tell you just how vital these are in in understanding uh, how changes can help a, a population and, and and to help people in their life. So I'm all for it. I think they're fascinating as well. What the data we can get out of them uh, is, and uh, I I I think uh, the more general data we know. About people, not not about their their personal lives, of course, and and things like that. Uh, but I think generally uh, it, it helps paint a great picture of, of of a country and where it's going. Well, Daniel Bates and Ed Stocker, thanks to the two of you as always for being with us on the program today. Today's program was edited in London by Louis Allen. A big thanks to him as always too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of Monocle on Design, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a short while ago. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.